0: My name is Professor Peter Nash from the Griffith University in beautiful downtown Brisbane and today we're very fortunate to be joined by one of the world's premier psoriatic arthritologists, Professor Philip Meese from the University of Washington School of Medicine in the USA. Hi Philip, welcome. Um, Today we're going to be talking about the SELECT PSA2 trial that's been very recently published in ARD, but before we get started, Philip, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself and what your research interests are? We know that you're a very eminent PSAologist, in fact, former president of GRAPA and life member of everything important in PSA land.
1: (laughs) So thanks, Peter. Uh, I uh, Yeah, I'm a rheumatologist practicing in Seattle and um, busy with seeing patients as well as doing clinical research. Uh, I help um, mentor young uh, uh, residents and uh, junior faculty coming along in the world of PSA and psoriasis. Uh, and through this organization, GRAPA, that you and I are both part of, uh, we really do have a chance to touch um, numerous um, uh, and interact with people all over the world who are interested in psoriatic arthritis. And I've had the fortune to be quite involved in, uh, from a methodologic point of view in helping to design uh, most of the clinical trials, uh, including uh, this one we're talking about today with this very interesting um, uh, emerging um, uh, JAK inhibitor, uh, upadacitinib.
0: Excellent. So, let's just talk a little bit about the jack market in the usa how's it going in the ra world and is it available in the psa world tofa had a study not so long ago um what's the what's the market like for jacks including psa in the u.s
1: i don't know the actual percentage uptake of uh, use of uh, jacks but I think they're popular uh, in rheumatoid arthritis. And uh, so most rheumatologists in the US readily use uh, the, the uh, various JAK inhibitors that are approved, uh, which include tofacitinib, baricitinib, and upatacitinib. The, um, uh, there is a fourth one uh, that is in kind of holdup pattern, uh, filgotinib, which uh, hasn't been approved. But the, um, uh, and it's pending some safety data that they're um, readying for the uh, FDA. So these, these, uh, TOFA has been out for the longest and is uh, used quite a lot. Uh, we use it in the once a day sustained release form. Uh, and it is a highly efficacious in RA. Uh, it was approved in PSA, a couple of years ago, and and I've seen a real uptick in it because uh, it's a highly effective agent in PSA and uh, people like using an oral, oral medication. Uh, w- during the COVID pandemic, I haven't seen it either go up or down. I think people uh, recognize that all of our drugs have um, uh, been largely exonerated uh, from being associated uh, with either increased Uh, likelihood of acquisition of COVID infection or having a more severe course based on some of the uh, long-term registry data that's been accumulating since early March. And so I I, uh, personally, I've I've most of my patients that are currently on any of the uh, JAK inhibitors are continuing with them and feeling fairly comfortable about it. The only thing I'll I'll throw in is that we've more recently had some uh, warnings about thrombosis uh, with the uh, D, uh, either DVT or pulmonary embolism. Uh, uh, this originally arose in the investigation uh, of baricitinib, uh, but it, it looks like it might be a, a, a small signal uh, in patients at risk. Uh, and so that's something that we've had to talk about recently with our patients. I can't say that it's deterred them. Uh, from uh, using the medication or or getting or making them want, want to switch, but it is uh, an additional part of the conversation we have with patients now.
0: Excellent. Um, do you just from your background reading, do you think it's a Jack two effect or a Jack class effect? That's the kind of key question.
1: Peter, I'm going to turn to you. I have a feeling you're more expert on this than I am, so I'm going to turn that question back to you. All
0: right. Well, let's let's plug on. Let's uh, um, tell us a little bit about the rationale for this particular study.
1: So, uh, upadacitinib is a more selective Jak one inhibitor, uh, and the uh, so, for example. Uh, it may not and not having as much DAC2 effect, it may not have as much uh, impact on uh, negative impact on hematologic parameters, for example. Uh, and it has proven to be very effective. Its rheumatoid studies were uh, very strong. Uh, in fact, in, uh, in uh, one of the rheumatoid arthritis studies, it's 30 milligram uh, dose uh, bested, Adalimumab, for example, and its 15 milligram dose was similar uh, to adalimumab in effectiveness, Uh, and uh, the um, and we've seen in PSA we've seen it be as strong in the musculoskeletal uh, aspects of PSA, which includes arthritis, uh, enthesitis, dactylitis, uh, as uh, the uh, TNF inhibitors, for example, Uh, and interestingly. the data on in the skin from tofacitinib and uh, filgotinib suggested PASC-75 responses in the 45% uh, range. Here we're seeing better results. So we're seeing skin results, uh, which are up in the um, at 50% range, even higher uh, for PASC-75. Don't know why that is. Um, um, Uh, I I don't have a a clear cut idea, but uh, I'm not gonna uh, uh, look a gift horse in the mouth. I'm gonna gonna (laughs) accept that and like it. And I'm sure patients are gonna like it. Uh, The safety profile with the drug was similar to what we saw in RA. Uh, There was a bit of a dose dependent relationship in terms of a little bit more infection in the 30 milligram dose um, uh, than uh, the 15 milligram dose. Uh, but that there were no new surprises. And in particular, uh, we didn't see, uh, you know, you worry in a psoriatic arthritis population about uh, liver uh, issues uh, because patients may have fatty liver and we didn't see that. We didn't see any uh, real uptick of uh, transaminase uh, uh, problems within the PSA population with upenacidinib. So uh, strong, uh, strong, strong data and Uh, uh, And and we wanted to show that and we were able to show it with both the, uh, in both a a group of patients that were naive uh, to uh, biologic therapy, which was uh, PSA select one. And then in the trial that I lead authored, which is the uh, PSA two uh, trial in which patients had uh, previous exposure to TNF therapy.
0: Excellent, so, so leg pearson was lovely. The skin response was up there with TNFs and uh, it was really twice as good as you know we expect MTX, even TOFA. And you had imaging as well, which was very reassuring. So uh, no imaging this current study, but can we just ask a little bit about uh, the outcome measures? Should we be using DASH, should we be using MDA? Did this study help us decide which of those measures should be the one to use in clinical trials? Or do we keep going forever measuring
1: both? Good questions. So the, I'm partly to blame for the <laughs> ACR response being the primary outcome measure forever. So back in 1999, uh, ninety-eight, ninety-nine. I can't. How old? How old were you, Peter? Then, uh, the uh, uh, <laughs> the uh, uh, the <laughs> I I designed the original, Inbrell uh, or a trial in uh, PSA uh, as an investigator-initiated study, and uh, I had just had to sort of, sort of go well. What what can we use as outcome measures? So I said, well, let's pull in the ACR twenty response as a primary outcome from the rheumatoid arthritis trials, and let's pull in the PASI score from uh, the uh, dermatology psoriasis trials, and we sort of cobbled it together. We didn't have PSA specific uh, uh, outcome measures at the time, and uh, in that particular trial, uh, it worked well. The FDA liked it, and and they they sort of they're a very conservative body, and so they really have wanted all trials subsequently to use the ACR20 as a uh, primary outcome measure, even though it's primarily articular in focus and uh, and not more comprehensive, uh, uh, unlike the MDA. Uh, We did try uh, to get uh, the the minimal disease activity, which includes enthesitis, skin disease, for example, uh, as a co-primary in the SEAM trial, uh, a few years ago when a etanercept was being compared to methotrexate uh, and the FDA even then said, mm, not quite ready for it. We don't know that everybody understands it. We don't know if American rheumatologists really understand it. And so you can use it as a key secondary, they said. The EMA, which I think is more advanced in its thinking and more willing to look at, at what is really a meaningful response measure are considering uh, shifting uh, to uh, a, a psoriatic arthritis specific measure such as the PASTAS and having uh, achievement of minimal disease activity as a key uh, secondary. Uh, so we still, we're still still there uh, with the ACR responses, but we collect all the others as well. Uh, so for example, in, uh, in this trial, uh, the MDA uh, ended up being uh, met by about a quarter of the patients in the trial, a um, highly meaningful number, uh, achieving uh, minimal disease activity. And we also measured individual uh, uh, musculoskeletal responses like enthesitis and dactylitis, and saw, uh, for example, uh, enthesitis uh, being achieved uh, in just shy of uh, 50%, where there was complete resolution of enthesitis. And dactylitis in almost two-thirds of patients yeah. achieving complete resolution of dactylitis. So even though that ACR remains the primary, we collect all this other and we can really get a comprehensive picture of the impact of a drug on on the disease.
0: And and these are a these are a tough bunch of patients that had long-standing disease, 30% had failed, three biologics. Did you see any difference in response? if you failed one biologic or if you failed three? Should we still switch to a Jack if you failed three biologics? What's the good efficacy in both those groups?
1: Yes, as a matter of fact. So they, uh, whether or not the patient had failed one, two or three, uh, they continued to have evidence of uh, good response. And uh, so I would say absolutely yes. Um, I think that it's uh, when I look at say registry data, I think it's okay if after failure of, I say secondary failure of a first TNF, um, meaning they have a good response initially and then lose it after a while. Uh, I think it's fair to think about a second TNF in that population, but but definitely after a second TNF, I would switch to a different mechanism of action. And um, I think there's a strong argument even for doing so after the first. Uh, loss of effect of of a TNF. Now that we have more and more agents available to us, I think we ought to be exploiting different mechanisms in order to try to keep our patients in low disease activity or or remission.
0: Excellent. And would you mind just explaining to those who don't understand it, because it's becoming more an issue with lots of trials is this hierarchy of, of uh, outcomes? And if you fail one, then every p value after that is only nominal. And, um, you know, we've seen it with the bimakizumab study, with the finch one in RA. This is becoming one of those things where if you're not careful how you set the hierarchy up and you miss one point, the rest can't be statistically analyzed without calling them nominal. Did it apply to this study too?
1: Yes, so there was a hierarchy uh, uh, where there you if if one measure uh, was uh, showed uh, a differentiation from placebo and in this case the primary endpoint, which was ACR20 response, then it would march down and and these are called multiplicity controlled endpoints, and so um, uh, it actually Uh, was able to achieve uh, uh, all of its hierarchical rows. So ACR20 then achievement are showing statistical significance for the HAC score, then showing uh, statistical significance for a skin score, uh, uh, and then a quality of life score, and then fatigue score and MDA. Uh, And so it, uh, it it was strong in its ability to um, achieve all of those uh, endpoints.
0: Excellent. And I've always wondered why the FDA wants hack as either primary, co-primary or, or an important secondary, because these people have had 15 years of disease with a lot of damage. There'll be a large irreversible component of HAC. So. I, I don't see that on the European side of these studies, but the FDA seem to go ACR20 and hack as the two co-primaries.
1: You're absolutely right. Usually the hack has to be either sec- in the hierarchy, either second or third uh, uh, from the FDA perspective. And I guess their thought is uh, that, okay, fair enough. We want to have symptom control uh, and patients be more comfortable, but we want... To make them functional, we want to we want to show that there's not just a uh, impact on symptom control, but we want them functional. Maybe that's an American thing, Peter, where uh, they <laughs> want they want everybody out working, uh, and, and so so you've got to achieve uh, improvement of function and get out there to to uh, to uh, achieve the American spirit. <laughs>
0: I just wonder, this may not be easy to explain. Um, I I noticed that at weeks 12 and 16, the background medications could be adjusted in the patients that hadn't reached the 20% improvement. I wondered if that happened a lot or very little and it affected the outcome.
1: uh, No, it it happened little. It was more in the placebo arm, obviously. Uh, And the... um, uh, So... um, it, it ultimately did not have a meaningful impact on the uh, on the outcomes.
0: Excellent, excellent. Um, again, very tough patients. There's a dose response. The 30 always did better than the 15. I often wonder if we shouldn't start with 30 just for 12 weeks, get them in remission and then cut back to 15. What? Is there any feeling that that's even going to be possible for rheumatologists down the line, or would the safety too much of an issue with the 30?
1: I think that uh, ultimately the FDA and its conservativeness is going to basically say, "Let's go with 15." Period. And um, I, if they, the, the, uh, the although what you just described it makes complete sense. Uh, do an induction dose, bring it under control, and then cruise with 15 milligrams. If anywhere they allow 30 milligrams to be uh, uh, as part of the approved approved package, then they've got to be open to the possibility that patients are going to just use 30 period on an ongoing basis. And And so uh, we're not as tightly controlled here as you might be in Australia, for example, in that regard. And so... They've got to think about all these possibilities and they saw that there was a higher infection rate for example or a higher zoster rate uh, with the 30 milligrams and so i think i, I don't think that that's uh, likely but fortunately the 15 milligram dose is fine I'm, I'm 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 satisfied with that yeah um the
0: other interesting thing is in our neck of the woods at week 12, we have to have at least an ACR 50 response to get more drug. And it was nice to see that um, the plateaus were out, uh, say ACR 50 and 70 were out about 16, 20, 24 weeks. So we should give the partial responders at least 24 weeks, don't you think?
1: I think so, yes. Uh, so I, um, uh, I'm i a little bit Boy, that's a little draconian, Peter. That uh, <laughs> that you all might have the rug pulled out from underneath you on some of these drugs. We, yeah, there are some patients that do yeah, continue. Yeah, these things are very rubbery. Yeah, gosh.
0: Yeah, it's very, it's very rubbery, and the other the other, uh, as you say, there was a dose response, both with safety as well. And it even seemed to lose a bit of uh, selectivity as you push the dose. You started to get a touch of anemia and a touch of neutropenia. So I think you're right, 15 is not too strong, not too weak, does the job nicely across the board. Um, two other things, any chance that there's a breakdown of the failed bdmards going from a 17 to a Jack or a TNF to a Jack, they worked just as well. There was no difference. you didn't have many 17s,
1: I suppose. Uh, good question, and I think virtually all of the, um, the great majority of the failures were all TNF inhibitors, so yeah. I don't have a, a yeah. separate line on the uh, 17.
0: Yeah, that's that's one of those things that people always ask, and it's not, by the time that study was started, it wasn't an appropriate uh, thing. You did have a monotherapy group. Was there any difference in response, mono to upa, not, not, not substantially,
1: and, and, and at least in our, uh, our use of the drug, we're, we're much preferring using it as monotherapy, and patients prefer that too, uh, just to get away from some of the side effect issues of methotrexate.
0: And can you help us with Zoster? We don't have Shindrix in Australia because the US oh. uses it all up, so we have, to, <laughs> so we have stuck with zostavax. It doesn't work very well. How do you guys handle that vaccination issue? Do you zoster-vax them at, or Shinrix no. them at the methotrexate stage or when you're getting into a jack? What do you do?
1: So we are now much more sensitized about zoster in general. And so we're, we're regardless of whether patients are using JAK inhibitors, we are trying to, we're ascertaining whether or not they're vaccinated and encouraging patients to get vaccinated with Shingrix. Um, and we're warning them that they could get a little bit sick uh, briefly uh, with with the, the medication because it packs a punch. But the um, uh, with uh, the jack inhibitors, what we generally are doing uh, in the old days with zostavax, we would have them get the zostavax before they started a jack inhibitor. Now that's not as clear that that's necessary. But as soon as we uh, recommend a, a medicine like apatidine. We uh, are talking to the patient about going to their local uh, pharmacy and getting the Shingrix going. Um, uh, it takes a few weeks for getting uh, authorization for the new drug. So that's perfect timing. Um, they've, they've got the first dose in, uh, they start their, uh, their JAK inhibitor. Uh, they proceed getting a second dose a bit later, but they, we don't have them stop their JAK inhibitor Uh, since it's a uh, non-live virus vaccine. And so, um, yeah, but we are paying more attention to making sure that they're vaccinated.
0: Excellent. So any take home messages for the clinician from this study? Um, BDMA, inadequate responders, went to Jack, responded nicely across all the domains. Um, Any take home message for the clinic?
1: Really solid drug not only in the musculoskeletal domains, but also uh, in the skin domain and in a separate ankylosing spondylitis program showing effectiveness in the spine of uh, of that disease. So we anticipate it to be highly effective in PSA spondylitis or axial PSA. And uh, from the uh, SELECT PSA-1 trial, ability to inhibit radiographic progression So I think it really does check all the boxes and uh, uh, joins uh, the group of uh, uh, jack inhibitors, which I think are going to grow in popularity and use, uh, especially because of the ease of use of an oral medication by patients.
0: So thank you so much for your time, Philip. We appreciate how busy you are. This has been the CSF Orphan Review Podcast. If you'd like to know more about this paper and read it for yourself, it's uploaded on the CSF website this month. You can get detailed slide sets are available in the publication section at cytokinesignaling.com. Please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast from and give us some feedback and let us know what you think. Thank you so much, Philip.
1: Okay, thank you, Peter.